Mr. Pop. Dark. When the little birds are nasty, and I listen to them too, there's two lonesome people in the whole wide world. That's me and the man in the moon. Hello, welcome to Miss Chonk University Radio, podcast exploring Fantasy Flight's Arkham Horror the Card Game. I'm Ben. I'm Dan. And today we are joined by the Beard, uh, or Tyler, who is a, a game designer who's done a lot of fan-made campaigns for Arkham, including two of which we played recently on our MUR Plays streams slash YouTube videos. Uh, we played his Alice in Wonderland campaign, and we just finished a couple minutes ago uh, his Cyclopean Foundations campaign. Uh, so we wanted to talk to him a bit about his game design stuff. But first, uh, Tyler, you want, why don't you say hi and introduce yourself a little bit? Hello, I am Tyler Gotch, known as The Beard to most people online. Happy to be here. It was a fun time watching these guys go through the campaign. I uh, I have to say, I'm sure you get this all the time, but uh, you know your your nickname is The Beard, but you have an absolutely incredible mustache. So well well done, sir. Thank you. There's a bit of a long story for that that I won't get into, but... <laughs> I picked the screen name before I switched to a mustache, so I'm still yeah, that, staying as the beard online. That that might be a whole separate podcast, maybe. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's great to it's great to have you here. Like we've we've had a great time uh, playing the campaign, and you've been you've been in the in the chat watching some of it. So that's been cool to have. Um, I, I think you've caught us a couple of times when we've like screwed up the rules or something, which is always really nice. True, and a couple of times where I forget my own rules. So you know, <laughs> there's give and take. Yeah. Yeah, let's see. So uh, I have you, you've you've talked a little bit. You've you've done some other game design stuff. Can we ask just really quickly, how did you get involved with Arkham Horror, the card game in particular, and what is it about this game that uh, that sort of lends itself well to making cool campaigns and scenarios to you? Well, my real world friend, who is also named Tyler, actually, mm. is a collector of board games and card games, and we have a weekly tabletop group night, and one of the nights we cracked open Arkham, the LCG, and I was already familiar with Arkham Horror from the board game that I'd played back in high school. So I was already semi-familiar with what was going on, and the card game was just a much cleaner, more focused design, and I enjoyed the story integration. Yeah, it's definitely, because we, we used to play the old board game as well, and certainly it was it was a good time, um, but it, it takes a lot longer, and uh, it's it, it's a little bit messier, I guess. The card game is just a really great experience all around. Yeah, for the board game, it's fun and all, but it's not exactly as flavorful because it's like we're facing a Thakwa and suddenly a portal opens up at the river docks and a fire vampire comes out. Hmm. Which which is kind of fun, but it's definitely a different tone. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then so 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 as Ben mentioned, this is the second of your campaigns that uh, that that we've played here. How many how many fan campaigns have you have you made in total or fan scenarios? Like, what what's your your oeuvre like when it comes to Arkham Horror the card game? Oh, <laughs> let me see here. Um, done War of the Worlds. That was three scenarios. Alice in Wonderland is eight, so that's eleven. Cyclopean Foundations is eight. That's in twenty. No, it's nineteen. <laughs> then I have Jumanji, which is four, so that's twenty-three. I'm just finishing the Color Out of Oz, which is another eight, so that's thirty-one. Ooh. And then I have let's see. A handful of standalones too right yeah the arkham incidents so that goes up to 36 <laughs> and then the three halloween scenarios i've done so 39 and then the standalone i did for don't starve so that's 40 scenarios so far when wow. depending on when you started you might be on pace to catch up with ffg at some point which is really <laughs> which is really impressive i'm trying to think when i started because i think when i got into the game was Circle Undone was just finishing up. I'm trying to remember what year that was. Uh, like four cycles ago, right? Or 20, five, maybe? 2018, 2019? Probably, yeah. probably 2019. Yeah, so I average about, I think, one scenario a month at that rate. That's a pretty strong pace. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> that's really good. Do you just a little bit more about your process? Um, so, do you have like, uh, do you you know, do you do a lot of playtesting yourself? Do you kind of playtest? I know there's a huge community of uh, of other people that are doing custom scenarios. Are, are you kind of like involved with a bunch of those other creators and things to do playtesting and you know sharing ideas and things like that? A little bit. 
I try to give feedback to people when I can, but because my own Arkham group only meets like maybe once or twice a week at best, there's not a whole lot of testing we're currently doing because one of them is uh, in graduate school for psychology. So he basically has zero free time whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, but, that sounds that sounds about right. Or psychiatry. One of the two. I'll have to ask him again. But <laughs> Uh, I, I have done some testing in the past. My group was one of the first people to actually test Dark Matter, which is oh. probably the most well-known campaign out there as far as homebrew goes. When we've done Call the Plague Bearer, Betrayal of Mountains of Madness, Ages Unwound, and we're, we've still got a few others that we'd like to do, but it's just a matter of finding the time. Mm. Yeah, yeah there's, a lot of, there's a lot of good stuff out there. Yeah, I think those are ones we've all at least... Somebody on on the podcast has played, I think all of those. Dan and I played Ages and Round, and yeah, most of it until of we until we until we got owned. But uh, you know that, big, that happens sometimes. Big fans of Batbomb, and yeah, so and it's impressive. The Arkham homebrew community does a really good job of kind of keeping themselves in a good place for balance. Yeah, like there's not any like big campaigns out there for the most part that are huge deviations from the norm. Like they're all the same level of quality overall. Yeah, it's come really far. I remember when we, several years ago, when it was in a much earlier state, we would play some standalones, and sometimes some of them were kind of shaky as far as rules or balance goes. But these days, uh, I mean, it's mostly, the, the the quality on average is very, very good. I'm a little bit curious, because we always want to we always want to hear this from people. So when you're playing the game as a player, do you have like a favorite class or investigator or deck style, or do you have sort of any, any particular favorite cards or, or archetypes that you like? That's an excellent question. There's a lot that I like. I don't think I have any specific class that I enjoy because I like different things about each class. So usually when we play, I usually let my other two friends pick whatever they're going to play first and then I'll pick just to fill in the gap. I just think that's a fun way to decide because otherwise I probably couldn't. Yeah, it's, um, yeah. I end up slotting in a lot of the time too. <laughs> fill in whatever, whatever's needed. As far as play styles go, it's kind of hard to quantify. It's I'd probably be... I probably have the most fun playing classes that or investigators or cards that give you alternate ways to use things. Mm. Like with um, the Crystallizer of Dreams, using events also for their icons after you've played them, mm. stuff like that. That is just, pretty fun. Just kind of more ways to use the stuff you already have. Yeah, that, that always feels good. And, and really, that's one of the things that's strong about this entire game is that there's this built-in committing mechanic where all of your cards can kind of have dual uses to them right which is which is if you're a card game player like everybody likes that you know it's just kind of a fun way to play yeah let's uh let's talk a little bit about cyclopean foundations in in particular so yeah we we just finished it we just finished the eighth scenario i think we've said we've already said a lot of really nice things about it because we had a great time playing it what what made you decide to to make this particular campaign like where did the ideas come from and how did you get started Honestly, it's been in the works for a long time. Like I had the first proto ideas for it while I was still working on some of my earliest homebrews. I just decided to work on those first because I had clearer ideas of what I wanted to do at the time. Mm -hmm. But I just thought the non-Euclidean stone was kind of a good focal point because I think it's the coolest part of the Call of Cthulhu story, just like warping space and kind of weird perspectives and physical objects that shouldn't exist in the real world. Right. But that's... It's always just kind of secondary in every Cthulhu-related thing I've ever seen. So I thought I'd just make a campaign that has it as the central focus. It was just what I wanted to do with the story. It, it is really cool that several of the mechanics, both in individual scenarios and the kind of campaign-spanning ones, are, are tied to that theme. So that's, I mean, everything does like tie together really well. Maybe we want to um, uh, give a quick a quick summary of of the campaign, or like a let's like a two-line pitch or two-sentence pitch, just. For people that haven't that haven't watched the streams or uh, haven't played it yet, yeah. If, for people that haven't watched or played Cyclopean Foundations, what? Yeah, what, what's what's the elevator pitch to get people to play it? So I guess the elevator pitch is the investigators get wrapped up in a conspiracy with a stolen shipment of stone, mm -hmm. and this slowly develops into a much larger plot with warping space and creating stone that does strange things to the world around it. And of course, Cthulhu is involved because it is based on the Call of Cthulhu story. Mm. That, that's a big draw. You know that guy who's on the cover of all the books and all the boxes, the big the big squid dragon guy, the guy whose who's call it all is? I mean, no spoilers, but uh, he might be he might be involved in this one. So that's that's 
pretty neat. Just maybe, and I was kind of happy that I beat Fantasy Flight to the Punch with the Cthulhu campaign. Because <laughs> they're they're a hard act to follow. There's no question. <laughs> yeah, well, we we kind of, uh, but it's interesting too. I, I love it when um when some of the creative you know uh, homebrew creators get to something before FFG does, because then as fans we kind of get to see both takes on it. Mm. So you know we loved Betrayal of the Mountains of Madness, but then you know Edge of the Earth comes along and it's a very different spin on it. It's like we have two sort of different mountains of madness themed, themed thing so if we do eventually get a like a cthulhu centered campaign from ffg it'll just be interesting to kind of like you know compare the two exactly i'm looking forward to everything pretty much official and homebrew mm. yeah so let's see so should we start going through the scenarios ben do you think yeah maybe let's just kind of talk about each one highlights and the any interesting design uh insights you have so i mean the campaign as a whole kind of starts off uh, as you said, we're we're looking for a missing shipment um, in the rain. The first, first scenario, it really hammered home that you're standing in the rain the entire time. Um, but uh, yeah, we we were trying to look around and try to find. We we're trying to find a missing boat, right? I got to remember myself because it was like two months since we played it. But uh, yep, yeah. Any any interesting tidbits on like how you come up with the the intro to a campaign to like set the initial theme and like scatter hints of like what's coming down the line? Well. That's a little hard because it depends on the campaign. For most campaigns, I start with a story and just kind of block out generally what events and what uh, story beats are big enough to be full scenarios and what give players enough to do to be full scenarios and what are just kind of the in-between parts. Hmm. So I kind of decided the eight big uh, checkpoints for the story, those would be the, the, the scenarios. And the first one just had to start with just your first search for the stone, getting you involved in the whole conspiracy, whether or not you succeed. It's it's what gets you involved with the cult and has the notice mechanic starting. Yeah, the the one of the themes of the whole campaign is this notice mechanic, which is like how much uh, I guess how much trouble you've caused basically to get the attention of the cults, and it right. has repercussions throughout the campaign. The more you have, the the more like. Uh, extra I don't, know, I don't know penalties is the right word but but difficulty or wrenches are thrown your way throughout the campaign like there's the these countermeasure cards that like directly impact your investigators ability to progress a little bit or slows them down and then like i think a lot of setup effects or even some card effects like reference the notice and like make make things more difficult so it's it's a good way to kind of set the set the stage there as like oh you know there's something suspicious going on you know and are are, are we do we have attention put on us or not? And that's that's kind of fun. And it comes in a little bit more in like the second scenario too, right? So the the second scenario is about going to an auction, and mm -hmm. it seems like there's a couple different ways to handle it. But like there's an ongoing auction, you can decide whether you want to like bid on the items or not. And I think if you bid on enough of them, you end up getting notice. Um, but if you don't bid on them, then it makes the scenario harder. So you have to kind of balance whether you want to make it more difficult now or in the long run make it more difficult that yourself. That one was funny because I think Ben and I kind of misinterpreted how it was supposed to work. I think we just kind of assumed that, well, to get all the to, to get all the points, like Midnight Mass style, we probably have to buy all the things, right? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> of course, it's a little bit more complicated than that. You, the goal is to like avoid paying for a bunch of things that you don't want without causing suspicion. Um, but that was that was definitely a fun one. Yeah, the the intent is that you're just kind of keeping up appearances. You don't need any of the items that are up for auction, but if you want to take the Preston approach and just buy out <laughs> everything, then that still gets you something. Yeah. It, yeah. It is funny to think of like, that is a scenario where having Preston in your group would, uh, would, would make things a bit, a bit easier. Yeah. So, so, okay. So yeah. So the first one is sort of the first inklings of the conspiracy and sort of figuring out what's going on with the, with the stone. And then the second one is the is second scenario two is the auction, right? And the, the names of those, sorry, are um, lost moorings and going twice. Should we? Sorry, so we, we talked a little bit a bit about notice. Should we briefly mention the other kind of campaign spanning mechanics that we've seen? Like there's there's non Euclidean, right? Which is um, text on locations that happens whenever you leave the location, right? And I think that was when was that first introduced in the first scenario, maybe? Yeah, I introduced the mechanic pretty slowly. In the mm. first scenario, there's just the main deck of the boat mm. that keeps adding clues to itself just to kind of introduce players to the concept. Mm. And then it slowly ramps up over the course of the campaign until, as you just played with your uh, final scenario of the run, 
everything is non-Euclidean. It's just a complete jumbled mess. I also, I, I like that um, non-Euclidean starts as a pure sort of just something that's basically purely harmful to you. But by the time you get to the last scenario, you kind of have to learn to sort of use it a little bit in some cases or to try to get, to try to eke out a benefit from it. That was pretty neat. Yeah, you're finally getting comfortable with it for better or worse. <laughs> yeah, Pro probably a mixed bag, probably both. Ben, do you have anything else about going twice or? Yeah, I just I remember that like the auction mechanic was really well built into it. Like you were always aware of like, OK, then this thing's going to go for sale soon. Do we need to put money on it? Do we not need to put on money on it? And then the encounter cards were like really tied to there were ways that like, oh, now it costs more money or you're forced to bid on it or you're going to get beat up by this. Uh, you know, you'll take damage because they'll throw you out for not, for not bidding or whatever. So I thought the theme on that was really strong. And I like it wasn't it wasn't like a scenario. It's like, oh, this is a scenario that's taking place in an auction house and we're doing something. It was like, oh, there's an auction here. And it was like really focused around it. So it's not like a, it wasn't just like a background piece that was built in, which I thought was really cool. But after that one, we uh, I think we, we start digging into the conspiracy more. Uh, the story, we, we go to try to find like our employer. I guess I'm trying to keep it a little bit vague on what the the like the actual uh, resolutions of this stuff is, but uh, yeah, we're trying to find our employer, and we have to investigate his house to figure out why we were employed and what's going on with these weird stones. And at the same time, there's there's enemies there that we have to kind of like sneak around and dodge, or or Mark will shoot them. You know, one, one of those two <laughs> things happens. So when it comes to the mythos of bullet, is usually a good answer for a lot of things. <laughs> oh yeah. It won't, you know, it doesn't solve every problem, but it solves, solves a lot of problems. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to remember what the main, um, there, I think there was like interludes in that. Where we got like a lot of information, but I was trying to remember what the like main mechanic going on in that one was. Um, there was the, um, the special enemy mm. that shows up and is uh, quite oh. a problem throughout the house. I, yeah, I think I remember there was one enemy like we managed to completely avoid until like the last round or something that would have like made us have to run around the entire house as they tried to uh, get rid of the evidence. Is that the one you're referring so we, to? Or am I... There's that one, and then there's kind of the mid-boss, but I don't think you guys spent more than like one round on it just because Mark is a damage machine. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. There was a guy that showed up that we had to had to deal with, but... Um... Well, it's also in a, in a two-player game, if you just kind of like stack up all of your stuff and do action compression, you, you hope to be able to, you know, you hope to be able to take out a single guy pretty fast, but... Um, it is effective. Yeah. No, that was that one was definitely cool. Um, and I think this was this sort of a... I'm trying to remember which of the scenarios were the kind of like variable success... Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. This was the... I, ben is now... We're taking out the enemy that we were talking about that was kind of the really interesting one and that that reminds me how much i liked the kind of introduction of that particular uh antagonist in this scenario that was very spooky very creepy very cool very x-files so that was uh that was neat <laughs> and for both the first scenario and the third one with kind of the interludes giving you information that was kind of just from my desire to kind of have more of the players unraveling a mystery because a lot of the other mysteries and other campaigns are just like all right you have three clues per investigator advance there's the story let's keep going i wanted it to feel a bit more flavorful more like the players were actually digging up the the truth and uncovering it in the right places yeah that, yeah def definitely i feel like that's the vibe i got because you had to let you you got different business information at different locations that were like tied to it it's like oh we found you know his journal or oh, we found this this item or something and that kind of helped piece it all together exactly what was going on which is is a more it felt a little bit more interactive there than like just flipping over the act i guess like three times or whatever so yeah and, and then the four so after that we kind of we kind of like there's a point in the campaign where it transitions from like kind of casual investigating to like oh no we have to start dealing with an actual problem and there's like more of a time crunch and, and it, it sort of transitions to that during the fourth scenario where we, we go and uh, investigate a uh, an ancient order to find out what they know about about these stones and like the cult has infiltrated some of them and you have to try to figure out should, should we maybe uh what if we put a spoiler warning here and sort of include spoilers from here on out because at this point people who have heard about maybe the first few scenarios if they haven't played it yet they might be interested in playing it but it, it might be hard to talk about the mm -hmm. remaining part of it without bringing in some spoilers what do you guys think yeah okay the first three scenarios are kind of the mystery and the fourth onward is kind of acting on what you found out okay. yeah all right spoilers spoilers for the campaign then uh yeah, definitely we, we, definitely we, recommend checking it out if you can, can print and play it or uh uh have access to it on online uh and playing through it yourself 
yeah very very highly recommended go go play through it and then maybe come back and listen to uh to the remainder of this so that fourth scenario is is called crumbling masonry and this takes place in the um like the the masonic lodge or the masonic temple in, in philadelphia i think yeah which is right. which is which is a real place that you did some research on in order to you know incorporate elements of it into this right i did I was actually lucky in finding, I think I mentioned this during the actual stream, the building blueprints are available online through like the Wikimedia Commons. Mm, And the Masonic Temple itself has like a tour page that has images of a lot of the more ornate rooms in the building. Uh, And those are the ones I picked for locations. So it, it really worked out in my favor. So I didn't have to kind of like assume what the layout would be or come up with rooms that they might have. It was all just right there. And I, you, I think if you check out the campaign log, I included one of the blueprints in the like collage of stuff that's there. That is really cool. And and it also this one sort of like um sort of like Midnight Master of the Last King, it has a selection of different characters that you have to kind of interact with. Um, like NPCs sort of. And those for the for the art for those, I think you used what looked like sort of real oil paintings from of people from the time period. So that was just another um assuming that's what it was, it was another neat sort of authentic realistic yeah element to it that is correct i specifically looked up a bunch of oil paintings that looked like they'd be hanging in on a wall somewhere <laughs> in a, a temple like that yeah um yeah i i like this one a lot too um i'm trying to remember what our particular experience in this one was like was this the one where we kind of um we almost ran out of time at the very end and we sort of had to like very carefully plan out the last turn to sort of just yeah we, and we got a little bit lucky with the placement of the last uh target i think too yeah because like the the npcs or the the characters are all like neutral until you like spend i think you spend clues to like reveal one of them and then they they flip over and start doing bad stuff and the map is kind of like kind of divided into like two-ish wings right there was like a choke point through the middle you had to go through and we got lucky that the guy second floors yeah Mm -hmm. we got lucky that the i think the first two guys were on the floor we were on and then we went to the last floor and that was where the guy was and it made it so we didn't have to run around too much this one also featured a, a Tyler, an NPC Tyler, who uh, is a fun, you know, fun guy that you can get on your side if you if you do stuff right. It's true, <laughs> indeed. And Tyler is an actual thing in the Masonic Order. It's like a specifically appointed bodyguard for the officers. That's really cool. I like this one a lot. I, I think partially because we we always like the sort of um, try to do all of the things in a short amount of time scenarios are, are are fun if you're really trying to like min max stuff. But also, uh, I, like I said, I really liked the real location photos and the real like architecture and stuff just made it really interesting i got the impression you you did a lot of research for this campaign because the next one was like we we were traveling across the ocean on a boat and i guess it wasn't it was more like it's more like stereo seven that i was thinking about like oh like uh krakatoa was going to erupt again and i think you had mentioned like it's like oh there's an actual thing that was happening at the time yeah uh, you brought that up several times throughout the campaign it's like oh okay cool um and the I think I started the campaign in the in the prologue of like early November because I actually had to like look at shipping charts from the 1920s to see roughly how long a sea voyage would take going a certain amount of distance. And given that I wanted it to sync up with Krakatoa reemerging at the end of 1927, like literally New Year's Eve, I just kind of extrapolated back about two months, and that's where I had the investigators start. The more you play these games, you have to kind of develop a timeline of the 1920s and early 30s uh, in your brain. For instance, uh, we were trying to figure out which cartoon character would be featured on Vincent's Band-Aids, and uh, we we eventually decided it would be Oswald the Rabbit. So you know, it's, it's helpful to know it's helpful to know some of the specific dates for these things, whether you're a whether you're a serious homebrew creator or just a player that likes goofing around. Uh, but yeah, so that fifth that fifth scenario is called Across Dreadful Waters. Ben, do you want to kind of remind yeah. us the... Uh... So the, this one, we were trying to get to Singapore, right? And we had to take a boat, or a couple of boats, across the world. And you're like, there's there's three completely... This is almost, I don't know, if it's three completely different sets of locations and tasks you have to do to complete, depending on if you decide to go like the fast way, the, the slow way, or the careful way. I don't I don't quite remember the three paths. And it's kind of, it's sort of like uh, Search for Kadath in that like you kind of reset the map. A couple times because you go to a new set of locations you have to do something there and each location somebody tries to like sabotage your ship or like place blame on you for a crime or something um so you have to like solve a little mystery at each location before you can move on it's almost like yeah three little mini adventures Mm -hmm. on the checkpoints on your way to singapore 
yeah it's kind of that's kind of the vibe i got like it's it's the journey there but it doesn't it doesn't go smoothly it's not just a you know a boat going across the map uh cutscene or whatever you, you stop there and do some stuff but yeah we we only did one we only played it once but am i right in that like there are three there's almost three different versions of the scenarios or are they is it just kind of no there's three entirely different paths you can take and each one has different challenges there's canary islands to south africa to zanzibar there's gibraltar to egypt to india and there's panama to fiji to australia and each one of those has just completely different challenges at every step like you took the most direct route so you had like assassins and people trying to directly stop you a bit more Hmm. but for like the 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 one that goes out into the Pacific Ocean, you're dealing with deep ones a bit more. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. definitely cool because that that's a pretty strong reason to to replay the campaign. And especially that um you get to you sort of get to choose which of the three to do. So if we were to do it again, we could definitely pick one of the other two. Yeah. I think scenario six didn't we have to fight a bunch of mathematicians in scenario six because they trapped us in oh, a yeah. dome? Like that. Yep. <laughs> that was finally cool. getting revenge for all those math classes. <laughs> Uh, yeah that one uh that one was really cool um yeah we we like the enemies there we like the kind of uh weird the geometers and uh and whatnot and the way that they interacted with non-euclidean things that was really cool yeah Um, that was um that was another kind of experimental one i was just figuring out how to do like kind of a defense mission but not really a defense mission hmm. and at the same time it's kind of open how you approach it because there's just three randomized objectives right um, yeah, because it was so the ones we had one was sort of we were able to make progress whenever we cleared a hidden card. One was every time we triggered a non-Euclidean effect. Was it? It, it was. It was those sorts of things, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it's yeah. like it's like three. Ta- you get three tasks randomly out of five, and each one has like in order to advance it, you have to do something on the board, right? Which uh, makes it play differently each time. Some of it you like have some control over, right? But for the most part, it's it's kind of you have to be ready to react to at least the ones we had like two of them i think you had to react to certain encounter cards uh being drawn and then if you didn't draw those there were other ways on the map to like manipulate advancing those objectives right yeah for some of the trickier ones you kind of had to rely on the locations more Mm -hmm. so it adds a little bit of randomness but also like a way to control it um depending on on what you pull which is fun and this, I mean, this was like, uh, this was in Singapore. So I was, did this, did you also find the blue point, <laughs> blueprints to all of Singapore and figure out where, uh, <laughs> or, or part of the least, probably. Were. Yeah. Well, for both this and for the previous scenario, I had to do a lot of real world searching, mm-hmm. like checking maps, trying to find historic maps. And when I couldn't, just kind of looking up big landmarks and seeing if they were around in the 20s. Like for Singapore, probably their most famous landmark right now is like, a fountain that's like a mer-lion kind of thing, but it didn't exist in the 20s. Mm. So I had to figure out other ones that were more important, like the Cenotaph that was like a World War One monument. Okay. Yeah, because the, yeah, all the locations were sometimes some type of large building or, or, or place here. And for each map, the relative locations of the everything reflect how they actually sit in the real world. Mm. Granted, it's not always perfect, because sometimes there's like two famous monuments that are like one city block away from each other and the next nearest one is like a half mile down the road oh. <laughs> so I, yeah. I kind of had to make some allowances but it's it's roughly the right positions relatively yeah i mean the locations are always kind of a little bit abstract in arkham too right so it doesn't it, you know like uh when moving between places it doesn't necessarily mean the same distance or anything right so but uh yeah i mean that was definitely very cool like we can tell you put a lot of research into the campaign I mean, I'm not an expert on Singapore myself, but I was like, oh yeah, this this is all cool stuff. And I looked up one or two of the things afterward. And I was like, oh, it's real. That's fun. So. Was uh was this the one? Just going back to the notice uh, mechanic and how that affected things. I think this was was this the one with the encounter card that scaled uh, directly with the amount of notice we had, and we had to reveal like uh, eleven tokens or something. That was, <laughs> That's the one. That that definitely made us laugh when we first saw it. That was that was pretty funny. That surprises a lot of people. Just like, <laughs> oh. Oh, I see. Because <laughs> it, it, it's not like the amount of actual harm that you take is capped, but it uh, it's just that you're way more likely to hit the maximum if you have a lot of notice. But it, when you first look at it, it's, it's it's a little bit scary. Yep. And for the whole campaign, I kind of tried to mix up how notice was applied. 
Mm. I tried to make it so that it was never like reused in exactly the same way. Like mm. starting with fewer cards or resources, I could only do that in really one scenario. Otherwise it would kind of get irritating. Yeah. And yeah. It, or using it to make a token worse or using it to affect specific cards that are added or aren't and just making sure it's always a surprise how the notice affects you, but never making it so you're not waiting to get hit with the same bat twice. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I mean, it, I, I did notice, I, I, I did see uh -huh. how, that, yeah. <laughs> how that applied and that like it was always, it was always different. So it was, I was never sure like how bad it would be, but it was apparent like, oh, this, this is always negatively affecting us. But you know what? I assume there was an achievement at the back of this for having the maximum amount of notice at the end. So, um, <laughs> Uh, you guys probably got the maximum or close to it. <laughs> yeah, we were probably close, if, if if not if not there. I think the only way you can possibly get more notice is if, if the architects all escaped and then you kill them later in the campaign. Technically, mm. it's more uh, notice yeah. to kill them later. We also missed like one XP somewhere along the way, I think. So we probably could have, we yeah. might have been able to get more that way too. But could have been. It did feel like it was a good way to balance out, uh, like an, another way to balance, like if you're doing well, you got more notice. If you maybe got a bad resolution of scenario or didn't get very much experience, you got less notice. So it was kind of a, a decent way to to balance out higher power decks or stop you from like just snowballing through everything a little bit. Yeah, it's definitely helping with the scaling a lot. It's not perfect, but um, it, it definitely is a big win in my book just for themes alone because it makes sense that if a, if a cult conspiracy is monitoring you, if you're doing really well, they're going to start taking more actions against you because they don't want you to win. But if you're kind of stumbling through the scenarios and not being like 100% efficient about taking them on, they're going to be feeling a little safer about taking you on. They're they're not as worried as they would be as if you were just blowing through everything like Mark and Vincent did. It's uh, it's not too different from uh, GTA or whatever, where you get up to a really high star rating and like the <laughs> FBI starts sending tanks after you and stuff. So, yep, you guys were at six stars the whole way. <laughs> um, uh... So, yeah. yeah, so then the seventh one, Pyroclastic Flow, this was kind of a two-parter, right? The first part, we were in a small boat piloted by our friend uh, Sukiman looking for Krakatoa, right? And then the second part, we were kind of on the, the steep slopes of the volcano, I think? Yep. This one, I originally wasn't sure if it wanted to be two separate scenarios or one. And I originally had like a longer boat ride that was a bit more involved but the mechanics were kind of like you had to do a lot to achieve very little. Mm -hmm. So I eventually decided on just the one act for the boat ride and then the rest for the volcano. I really can't emphasize enough how much we enjoy volcanoes and how happy we were to uh, to get to interact with one. So that was that was great for us. Volcanoes I mean, are volcanoes are really cool. <laughs> they're really cool. They're so cool. I mean, they're actually very hot, but. <laughs> like, mount, like mountains are already cool but then if you have a mountain that like shoots lava out of it i mean come on like it's yeah it's a very oh, yeah. epic i, I saw piece. land before time i saw fantasia oh, yeah. when i was a kid oh yeah they had volcanoes in those and it was just the peak of it's always good hope it's, for it's always good you're never bored when you're when you're interacting with a volcano yeah and, um, and this we 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 described the scenario as we had to fight the volcano because at the end you like climb to the top and i don't remember exactly what you had to do but you had to you can like exhaust your weapons to try to uh okay. disrupt disrupt the ritual i think right um which yeah yeah technically it was attacking the pillar but i could definitely see mark just going resident evil punching a boulder <laughs> <laughs> yeah that sounds like mark's style yeah, I, I like this one too, and I, I, I like the two-parter aspect of it as well. It's always fun when you you start off a scenario and you're kind of the map is very small and you sort of don't know what's going to happen once you hit that actor agenda. It adds like some suspense to it, and that's uh, that just makes it more exciting, I think, from the player's perspective. Yeah, that was fun to design, having basically one location you're kind of confined to mm -hmm. for the first part, but then once you arrive, there's almost like too much to explore. <laughs> and the weird kind of uh you know going back to like the math theme in non-euclidean the weird kind of geometry of it where the the map is set up like a three by three grid but you sort of you kind of run up the top of the volcano and slide down the other side it, that's just like a, an interesting way for movement to work that i don't think we've really seen before and that added some extra it's, it's like a new thing to try to figure out this one also introduced a lot of the non-euclidean it was kind of really ramped up in this one, mm -hmm. right? Because like, yeah, you're actually like on. Are you, you're not on one volcano, right? The vibe was like you're on multiple different volcanoes and like teleporting between them. Is that was that correct? Did I remember that right? 
far less. Basically, yeah. they don't have enough for one volcano, so they basically cobbled their own volcano together from a bunch of stuff that's rising out of the ocean. Mm. Oh, yeah. We, we keep a, one idea we've talked about for an episode of the podcast that we've we've never done, but we might someday, is like uh, Dan Dan talks about math stuff relating to uh, to Arkham Horror. So maybe maybe one of these days I'll get to kind of give a little talk on what non Euclidean how that how that all works. Uh, it would the problem is that it would take a lot of preparation work. So we'll we'll see we'll see if that ever happens. Have a whiteboard handy. Exactly. Yeah, you gotta have you gotta have a whiteboard or a blackboard, either one. Yeah. Any Ben? Anything else about pyroclastic? Oh, definitely yeah. a really really good scenario. Volcano. Excellent. No notes. You know. I enjoyed it. I liked the character of um, of Sukuman. Uh, as, as as it's always good to have a good you know boat captain uh, character in a story. And he he, he saved yeah. us in the end. He did. Uh, was, so. Yeah, it, it was it was needed just for the story, just for you to get there. But I just thought it'd have a bit more fun making a more developed character who's kind of more willing to help you than just some hired captain would be. Because hmm. yeah, he has, have that he has in some... Innsmouth where you like have to hire a boat and the, and the captain just kind of doesn't really care what happens to he... you. He has some kind of wisdom of his own. He has like some some type of insight into some of the weird stuff that's happening. That's that was cool. And then the last one, which we just finished, uh, Tomb of Dead Dreams, which is by the way, great name, uh, great great <laughs> great scenario name. Thank you. Um, yeah, the, I mean this one. So I, I'm I'm sure Ben has some 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 comments, but I just have to say the like rotating uh, locations and rotating the investigator card. I mentioned this a little bit when we were finished playing it really 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 fun idea and it's the kind of thing that makes us wonder like oh it's crazy that no one's uh no one's really done that before um, i was actually surprised when i hit on the mechanic of just rotating cards it's like wait <laughs> there's no mechanic in the game that's ever cared about like the orientation of a location or your yeah. investigator mini card huh. exactly right i mean like sometimes you i mean player cards you know you kind of like uh exhaust or, or tap them right but like cards that are on the on the map themselves they're all just sitting there. Might as well twist them around a little bit, right? Exactly, and no better place than really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was a very cool mechanic. It makes the I mean, definitely makes every time you play completely different because the map is effectively totally different. And every turn, I was like, okay, it's a fun puzzle to figure out what the optimal pathing path to get from like wherever I want to be <laughs> that turn to get clues or to to get to the end game pillars. And I thought that was very fun. Yeah, it was it was kind of tricky to plot out too, just to make sure it would all work. Hmm. Because like with the locations being completely randomized and to where they connect afterwards, I had to make sure that of the random locations, ten of the twelve were used because there's three of each that connect to each orientation. Hmm. So if you're not using two of them, there's always at least one that will connect to another orientation, just to make sure you're not like locked out of that loop. Uh, yeah that makes sense yeah i was curious about that because yeah it definitely does seem like it would be sort of constrained where um you'd have to be careful not to have like an unsolvable map or something like that um, yeah that took a lot of theory crafting but <laughs> it and it ended up being a little simpler but at the same time the whole scenario is kind of a brain burner mm. and yeah. i i love those kind of scenarios and i know they're not the favorite of a lot of other people so i really appreciate when people enjoy those kind of scenarios oh we like, we love we love those yeah like my my heartiest handshake to anybody who enjoys the tea party in wonderland it was another one where i was just <laughs> messing around with stuff yeah that that was definitely a weird one with, with how you deal with uh where you are at a given time because of the chairs but i, I kind of um, want to play it now maybe maybe i'll have a chance to do that um and then you yeah. had you had to you had the, a big job in this one which was uh bringing cthulhu as a as the the big bad here and i thought the way you did it as, as i said earlier on the stream was was very interesting with you had him like only touching certain orientated car locations and certain orientations at given times and you could touch more and more as the as the doom advanced and you could sort of dodge him, but if you dodged him at like the left locations, he might still be touching the up locations or whatever. So I yeah. thought that was a, a a fun way to deal with like a, you know a big massive enemy who and Cthulhu himself is like uh like they're like more of a physical entity than like some of the other big bads right that are more abstract or like more like spooky in dreams. So it was kind it's of a, a... it's a giant ass sea creature that <laughs> right. has a lot of tentacles. Yeah. It is, and in, in the story, they drive a boat into him, so he's definitely there. Yeah. 
But I appreciate that you didn't just make him like an enemy that Mark could shoot or whatever, because that is definitely what would have happened <laughs> if, if that was an option. Yeah, you, you, you uh, made him, if I had made him a killable boss, he would have been dead in three rounds. There's no question. <laughs> so you you, you got to have at least one thing in every campaign that Mark can't uh, fight. I think that's that's very important for the for the you know the themes of the whole setting. Also appreciated the uh, very uh, high victory value of Cthulhu. That's a fun little, uh, I don't know, I guess not an Easter egg, but it's definitely it's definitely entertaining. I have victory something. <laughs> does, uh, not a number, does not compute. No, I um, just found a strange symbol, ran it through a couple things to make it look even weirder and threw it in there. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we, we tend to like the final scenarios of, of most of the FFG campaigns and most of the fan ones. You know, it's it's the big climax. It's usually kind of exciting. And uh, this was cool. You know, it had the same kind of climactic and, uh, you know, high stakes feel of, of a lot of other campaigns, but with different mechanics and sort of a different goals and different different ways of playing it. So that was really neat. I guess we never went to the uh, Acropolis, did we, Ben? We, no, we didn't. Uh, I peeked at it afterward. Uh, to see what was going on with it, but I think it was—it was, it was just—it looked like it was another way to go to locations and adjust your adjust your mini card, basically. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and and yeah. a victory. It was kind of there just to make sure the right number of randomized locations were used. <laughs> okay. Oh yeah. Yeah, that makes that makes sense too. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and this was uh this this one was 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 definitely really good, and I think um. I, well, I guess so. We, we we only played through it once, so we didn't get to see, you know, if there were other resolutions or because sometimes I'm sure that, you know, as as a designer, like you can have fun with like the bad resolutions. You can have fun with like the the ways it can go wrong. So we, we didn't see those this time. Maybe maybe we will in the future. Yeah, I did add a couple in there because I know this is a tricky scenario. So I will say there is one specific resolution if you are down to one pillar left and lose. <laughs> yeah, because you're kind of just really close. Yeah, um, just just something to kind of have a flavorful end rather than just uh, another another redirection to hope oh, you lose everything sucks. Yeah, it it's good to have like the partial victory, but slash partial failure <laughs> resolutions to to yeah. to mix it up a bit. So if at all possible, it's still nice to throw a lead into the <laughs> right. Exactly. The only thing I was wondering in the encounter deck for the last one, did we miss like was there any kind of really big scary uh, like non elite or, or or elite non boss monster that we could have drawn that we didn't? Um, I don't believe no. there is. There's like the spooky dreamers and the kind of bigger deep ones, but other than that, they're all enemies you've seen before. Okay, yeah. I mean the yeah the, the deep progenies are pretty are pretty scary and hard to deal with, and the the lucid worshippers also were very you, you got to be careful not to lose your cards to them. So there was a lot of I, I think we also just had a couple turns where we just like got lucky and didn't draw enemies. So it's yeah. true, lucid worshippers are very mean, especially for people who <laughs> like skill based play styles. Because yeah, if you if you don't deal three damage at once, you're probably going to lose a card you committed. Mm. How many times did we practice makes perfect this campaign? Probably like fifty or something. It was a lot. Uh, <laughs> mine mine whiffed a few times. A lot we, we still did a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. um, I guess a couple other themes. We didn't really talk too much about the encounter cards, but there was there was a whole set of like new hidden encounter cards, and there was also like mm -hmm. a a theme of like stuff that would remove cards from the game, well, if either discard from your deck or remove it from the game throughout, because it was kind of like. I was assuming it was like, you know, you accidentally put your magnifying glass down on the a spooky stone and it got zooped away to <laughs> uh, across the world or whatever, but... A little bit. I think the thematic reason for that was like the weird dreams that Cthulhu kind of influences that kind of just straining your mind. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's kind of weird that your hand and your deck both kind of represent your mind in a way in the game flavor, but... It's kind of vague, it's, yeah. It's vague, yeah. I did just notice someone in chat, Midnight Mask, says that there's a there's a textbook that at the MIT bookstore called Teaching Mathematics Through Games that uses the card game as an example for um, teaching wow. uh, combinatorics and probabilities. So that also that brings back fond memories of me also uh, randomly buying some math books at the MIT bookstore <laughs> on a couple of occasions. So um, yeah, I'll have to check that out. Maybe I can steal some stuff from that if we ever do do that episode. But, well, uh, people can try as they might they cannot escape math it is part of this game <laughs> yeah it's hard to, it's hard to get it out of there minus um, two uh... <laughs> yeah should we any any closing thoughts 
this was the campaign was really fun it was fun you know having you in in the in the chat to kind of uh to, to kind of watch us for for a lot of it and also thanks very much for uh coming on to talk to us oh it's, it was fun i enjoy watching people play through my stuff because um the design is fun the kind of project management is fun but the reason i design is because i want to see people enjoy the stuff that i make mm. and you guys really enjoyed it so i really like being in the stream there with you definitely in terms of uh so yeah i mean if you've come this far hopefully you've already played it because we have the spoilers but if, if for some reason you haven't definitely definitely give this campaign a try i think you mentioned is there like a print and play version or is there a way to to get physical cards for it there should be uh i know in the mythos busters discord in their bling my game channel they should have a pinned comment that has a bunch of make playing card project links mm. and i think there is one set up for cyclopean foundations I saw a link at least on the Mysterious Chanting website. Like I was looking through the comments for the campaign, and somebody had a link there. Uh, it's probably the same link, <laughs> I, I assume. But uh, if not, they both probably work. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a very fun campaign? I've enjoyed this, and I enjoyed Alice in Wonderland. And oh, and I've played your I played your Jacqueline Hyde scenario too with a couple of friends. We didn't stream that, but that was also a fun time. So I, I you know I'm excited to try more of your stuff in the future. Yeah, are you? Uh, is there anything else you're working on now, or anything that you'd like people to to check out in the future? Oh yeah, um, Jumanji is mostly done. I'm still in the kind of tune-up stages. It's a it's a mini campaign. It's only four scenarios instead of eight, because a lot of people had kind of expressed a desire to uh, have these shorter campaigns because not everybody has the time for a full eight mm -hmm. scenario mm -hmm. campaign. And I just had a couple ideas that fit Jumanji, so I made that one. And also currently featured fan content in Tabletop Simulator. <laughs> that is a good badge for me to wear. <laughs> <laughs> but I've al I'm also working on The Color Out of Oz, which is like Wizard of Oz plus Color Out of Space. Ooh. That is a full eight-part campaign, and it's done, but me and my friends are currently playtesting it at a bit of a slow rate just because of our schedules. Hmm. Yeah, we'll definitely have to well, keep an eye cool. for that. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of funny that um, a lot of what I enjoy is adapting different stories to Arkham, like I did with Alice in Wonderland, War of the Worlds, Jekyll and Hyde, Jumanji and all that. Cyclopean Foundations is my only like fully original project so far. And I do have another one planned, but it's kind of funny that it's the the most Arkham one I've had just because it's original built within the universe rather than uh, adapting something to the universe. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people really prefer that when they play Arkham because they're in it for the Arkham experience, not necessarily a lot of other stuff that I bring to it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's definitely value in, in both approaches, but I, I do think that for people that are interested in that, I mean, Cyclopean Foundations really feels like it could just be sitting at your local game store in an FFG box um, in terms of how well it fits with the with the setting and everything. Yeah, I fully agree. It's indistinguishable from a FFG game, really, uh, in terms of the, the quality of, of the cards and the design and the, and the flow of the story and theme. Uh, I thought it was really strong. And I played Alice in Wonderland, and that's definitely a different vibe, but it's still, you still do weave in the spooky mythos stuff into that well, which is a direct contrast to the, the wackiness of, of Alice in Wonderland in general. But even there, I, I thought you did a good job of tying it together. So, what is that? So ju just out of curiosity, what is, the, what is the most sort of far out or disparate thing that you would consider adapting to Arkham? Like, would you do like a um charlie and the chocolate factor uh, even that might actually that might not be that weird or like looney tunes or what it what is the kind of like most far out thing that you think you could coerce into the arkham horror world that is a good question i'm not sure because everything that i've adapted so far has had some element of either horror or madness to it mm -hmm. because of course everyone in wonderland is mad that's in oh, the yeah. story mm -hmm. there and if you go back and read like War of the Worlds, there's a section toward the end where the the narrator is talking about just walking around half mad in the kind of the mm -hmm. aftermath of the invasion. So I like to incorporate stuff that has a thematic link, at least on that level. I guess you could count Wizard of Oz as kind of the furthest thing from or, or Jumanji. Yeah, well, even Jumanji has some some connections, I guess. A little bit, yeah. Because um in the in the movie because i based it mostly on the robin williams movie mm -hmm. 
the main lady in the film, Sarah Whittle, she's been called crazy because she still had to live in the world after Alan was sucked into the game. And people called her crazy. People thought she was completely out of her mind when she was talking about her friend got sucked into a board game. So I kind of incorporated a little of that to the plot. But um, Wizard of Oz is just kind of um, a much more innocent child adventure than Alice in Wonderland is. There's zero madness involved. I just wanted to do something with it because it's uh, an early American uh, classic. It's It was actually written between like 1900 and the 1920s. So it, it is kind of like American literature from the time. It's just needed to be in, mashed up with something more mythos related. So it could be included. So that's why I put Color Out of Space into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it, well, especially cons- we we talked a little bit. You know, you're very prolific. You know, you, you've got a lot of irons in the fire. So it's exciting to get an idea of uh, maybe what we might see in the future. So that's coming um, up very soon. And actually, uh, my my playtesting group and I are going to be collaborating on the next campaign after that, rather than me making it and them just testing it because they kind of like the source material. And I already posted about it online so I can talk about it. It's going to be Half-Life, the video game. That's pretty neat. Yeah, I'm going to be stuffing some Mythos stuff into that and making a sci-fi campaign. So uh, people who like Dark Matter, maybe you'll get some more sci-fi fun. Wow. I mean, Count count Us is uh, very, very interested. I would love to to give that a shot. Yeah. Well, I will definitely be posting about it as I finish projects. Very cool. Yeah, Tyler, thanks so much for uh, for talking to us. We really appreciate it, and uh, congratulations on uh, on the great campaign. Thanks for playing it through. I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. That's all I can ask for. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Tyler, for bringing with us. Has anybody tried out any of Tyler's campaigns yet? Have you tried Cyclopean's Foundations? Let us know what your favorite is uh, in a comment or email us at comments.mer.fm. Uh, to stay current on what we're doing, you can follow us on social networks, uh, including uh, Instagram and Facebook, or join our Discord server to hang out. You can find the links to all these at social.mur.fm. If you really enjoy what we do, we always appreciate a nice review on your favorite podcasting source. Thanks everyone for listening or tuning in if you joined us live, and we'll catch you next time. Hi everybody. Bye.